All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I am your host, Josh Patterson. And before we jump into the episode today, uh, I just wanted to ask if you guys could do me a favor. If you've been listening to Rethinking Faith for some time and realized that maybe you haven't uh, liked the podcast or subscribed to it, if you could do that, that would be awesome. And also, if you would take 30 seconds to, you know, rate the show, Um on whatever platform you like listening, that would be really helpful uh, to me and hopefully to other people so the show can kind of um, reach more people or however algorithms work. I don't get it, but these are the things I'm told to say. So please and thank you. <laughs> and then finally, um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, maybe you have someone in mind as you're listening to this podcast episode today that you think uh, would really enjoy the conversation. I think this uh, conversation is going to be deeply beneficial not only to myself, but to, to hopefully others as well. And so if you would share that with somebody, I'd appreciate it. Um, and now that all of that throat clearing and call to action stuff is out of the way, I am happy to introduce <laughs> my guest today, uh, Dr. Laura E. Anderson. Laura, how are we doing today? Hello, I am doing wonderful. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I realized I should have asked you this prior to hitting record, but what would be the best <laughs> way to to address you? Would you like Dr. Anderson? Do you like Laura? What's the Well, you can call me pretty much anything, but Laura is just fine. Okay. So, <laughs> sounds good. Sounds good. Um, well, I guess one thing that I like to do just always uh to kind of kick off episodes is ask you just kind of like a brief bio question. So for maybe listeners who aren't quite familiar with your work, if you could uh, key us in a little bit into who you are and what kind of things you find yourself doing. Yeah. 
Well, as you said, my name is Dr. Laura Anderson. I'm a licensed psychotherapist in Tennessee, and I have a very tiny private practice because my main practice nowadays is um, trauma coaching, which I do online and through my company, the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, uh, which is an online trauma coaching company. And all of the practitioners um, are well-versed in religious trauma and, and supporting others. I also write. I do a lot on social media with like educating people and consulting work as well. And my specialty is religious trauma, uh, working with individuals coming out of high control religion, cults, uh, fundamentalism, purity culture, all the things that your listeners are probably very, very familiar with. Um, And truly that is inspired by my own life, my own story, my own experience inside religion, um, high control groups and relationships and the healing work that I've done. And so it's, um, it's weird to, um, yeah, to be able to be on this side of it, you know, because I, I was somebody who worked in professional ministry. So I was on that side of it, you know, for many years and now to be on the side of being able to support others through their healing journey is, uh, pretty honoring and pretty special. I love what I do. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, thank you so much for for sharing. And I'll be sure to link the different um, organizations uh, that you work yeah. with in the show notes for people yeah. so they can find you pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm curious if uh, you wouldn't mind just going uh, like perhaps sharing a little bit of your story, how you ended up uh, working within mm-hmm. and studying this kind of like uh, religious trauma and abuse. Yeah. Like what about your story yeah. led you to, to, to want to do that? Yeah. So I, like I, I briefly alluded to, I grew up within a high control religion. Um, I don't ever remember a time where I wasn't in church listening to the Bible being read to me, um, kind of memorizing scripture verses. Um, it was, it was my way of life, very heavily involved in ministry. My parents were also, when I was in late elementary school, we, my family and I actually moved to a fundamentalist Christian camp where my dad was a director and we lived on site. And in some ways that was awesome because most kids don't get to have, you know, a horse corral and a ropes course and and a lake in their backyard. So I'm, especially as an adult, I'm like very grateful for that because I wish I had all of that right now. Um, but, but there's also some other pieces to it in terms of isolation and, um, you know, just being really, kind of away from the world in terms of like knowing what's going on and being very insulated with information and, and relationships. And that was heavily present in my life. I often say I felt like every fall when I would go back to school, cause I did go to public school, um, every fall, it was like, I was having to, to learn like all the new things that were happening because I had missed three and a half months of, of life. Um, I was, I was in my camp bubble and, and people at school didn't really care about that. They didn't really care about, you know, making true love weights pledges and, you know, those sorts of things. So um, that's a bit how I grew up in terms of, um, I mentioned true love weights. I I was probably one of the first people that signed their virginity or pledged their virginity to their future spouse in 1993 during the major kind of wave of true love weights campaign. Um, and so I grew up kind of in the thick of purity culture. Um, I kissed dating goodbye was coming out 
right as I was ending high school, uh, we're kind of middle to end of high school. And, um, truly I hated it. I really did not like the book and yet I had to kind of buy into it because that is what was being taught. And, um, I ended up actually starting to like the book after high school, because as you're probably well aware, you know, once you graduate, you're supposed to you know, go out into the world and be this adult, but you have no idea how to actually do it. And on top of that, within religion, there's a lot of expectation and finding God's will is literally like a needle in the haystack. And so I actually came to appreciate the the tenets of I Kiss Dating Goodbye because it provided some sort of framework for me to stand on. And I was going, okay, if I have, if I follow these rules, I can guarantee this outcome. That's the bill of goods I was being sold. And so that actually gave me at least an illusion of safety and stability. And I really took that seriously. I mean, that I modeled my life around what it would what I needed to do to become a good Christian, godly, submissive wife. And then I waited for my godly husband to come along and he never did. And I waited and waited and waited and he never did. And so I would do all these things in the meantime, you know, I, I got a degree in, um, Christian ministry and Bible. And I worked at a church and I, you know, was involving myself in all these ways that was supposed to set me up for this job description that I really was supposed to have, which was wife and mother. And it just, it never happened. And now, you know, a couple of decades later, I'm actually quite glad. However, at the time it was extremely confusing because I, I was doing everything I was supposed to. Um, like I said, I was, I was working at a church in a paid position. Um, and that's where I started experiencing a lot of overt, uh, spiritual abuse. I would say, a lot of the doctrines I grew up believing and being taught were very abusive as well. But in terms of overt abuse, um, that's when I started experiencing that from some of the pastors at the church. And um, after a few years of that, I did end up quitting. I tried to move out of that, that community. I lived in a fairly small community, but from a very large church. And so I was very well known everywhere I went, people knew who I was, where I went to church, who I was affiliated with. And I wanted to move. I wanted to get out of that. I wanted to go back to school to become a marriage and family therapist. And I tried, but I was blocked by the leadership and the pastors at my church who would call and kind of sabotage different jobs I had applied for, schools that I was trying to go to. And, and it ended up that I had to stay in that community because as a woman with the Christian ministry and Bible degree, you can't really do much. And churches aren't going to hire you to be in a position past a certain point. And so I, um, I did end up quitting my job at the church and it gave me just enough space away that I was able to start seeing some things a little bit differently. And I quietly, very secretly started applying for um, master's degree programs in marriage and family therapy kind of all over the nation. Um, and ended up going to Liberty University, which is terrible, but <laughs> but also um it was interesting because it was, it truly was some of the first experiences I had with um, non-Christian textbooks in terms of like, you know, as it, as it came to my profession, it, I did not go to a Christian counseling program. It was accredited. It's a nationally accredited program. So of course there had to be all the standard classes. So I wasn't getting that kind of indoctrination. And that was really what opened up the door for what I would call like the beginning of my deconstruction process, which was 
gosh, at this point, uh, 17 years ago. Um, and so after I got done with that program, I knew I wanted to move. And I knew at that point I had the tools to be able to move. I knew that I could be a therapist anywhere. And that allowed me to move to the South, um, which like, great, move like further into the Bible Belt. This is wonderful. But it was kind of a calculated risk. I had some family here, some friends and connections. And um, eventually started my own practice. And that's really what led me into the work that I'm doing today. Like I said, I was deconstructing, but I didn't have a word for that. We didn't have language for it back then. Social media wasn't a thing back then. So I didn't, um, I didn't know that this was something that people talked about, that they went through, that they, um, you know, that, that they navigated. I, not in an egotistical way, but I thought that I was the only one. I thought there was nobody else dealing with this. And it was a very isolating experience. Um, but the further I kind of got into it and used some of my own therapeutic knowledge to kind of understand what was going on, I was starting to recognize symptoms of trauma. Um, and I started to notice it coming into my office just very organically as well. Um, people who had come in talking about experiences that they had or how they had left their religion of origin, but were still having very visceral uh, physiological responses to, you know, walking into different places and hearing worship music. And, and so I kind of like was tiptoeing into, into that without really knowing what I was getting into. Um, and it really wasn't until um, about a decade ago when I was getting out of a, a domestically violent relationship myself and I started looking at my journals and I was unable to differentiate um, kind of like who said what, was this my abusive partner or was this God and the church leaders and the pastors that I had been following. And that was a huge wake up call to me, both in terms of the, the work that I needed to do, but also recognizing these dynamics of power and control within religion. And I would say that was a really big turning point um, because it just, it allowed me to see things accurately and honestly. Um, and so that was a turning point for me personally. It was a turning point for me professionally um, as I got more into that, got additional training in trauma. And then I would say the 2016 elections is what a lot of people would mark as kind of the point where like a mass exodus of a lot of different churches and religions where we started to see these, this dissonance between what we were taught and what was being modeled. And so professionally, that was when my work really started picking up because people kind of knew I was working with high control, you know, people coming out of high control religions, cults, religious trauma. And it got to the point where I was like, I have a four-year waiting list. This is great business-wise, but like, I can't, I can't sustain this and I can't tell somebody, I'm sorry. Hey, I'll, I can see you in four years. Like that just didn't feel right to me. So that's when I started collaborating uh, and finding other people. It's when I started my company, the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, because I just, I knew that there weren't resources out there. Um, so that's like the tip of the iceberg, long story made short, uh, but still so much more in there um, in, in terms of why I got to where I'm at today. Yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, for sharing. I I find at least for myself, when having these kind of conversations, um, it becomes a lot easier when the person you're talking with uh, has experienced the kind of things that you're talking about, right? Um, you know, because I, yeah. I have friends that don't, like they get it because they're a friend, but they don't fully understand mm -hmm. the actual experience 
Um, and so I think it's really cool when, when, uh, I don't know one one way to put it <laughs> that, uh, one of my, my buddies, Greg likes to, to say is that in, you know, in life kind of, um, you know, when we get beaten down, we have either this kind of, um, place where we just become broken down or we can become broken open. And so yeah. living out of this place of like being broken open where you take your like serious shit that you went through yeah. <laughs> and yeah. now are willing to kind of like put that on, you know, display, so to speak, and then invite mm -hmm. other people into that and say like, hey, you're not alone. I just think I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so I, I appreciate your willingness to to share and like that yeah. you're the work that you do comes out of that Um mm -hmm comes out of that place because there's a yeah, level of you know, you. trust and understanding and experience yes yeah um, absolutely yeah and I I find it interesting too the kind of within your story the um tie to ministry like working in vocational mm -hmm. ministry because one thing that I personally have found um I guess frustrating is not quite the right word but frustrating at times is there's a lot of um resource and literature and stuff out there well not even a lot this is still a new field but a lot of the time it seems like people are are when they're talking about this kind of stuff um it's coming from people who experienced it as like lay people mm. and mm -hmm. as myself my story I served in vocational ministry for almost six years um mm -hmm. I basically I worked in one church that was extraordinarily abusive and then it ruined everything mm -hmm. else for me after that um yeah and so finding the kind of like this happens to pastors too. They're not always the bad guys, uh, mm -hmm. kind of thing is is kind of helpful too. So I, I appreciate yeah. that um you kind of have that perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. I felt yeah. like that was important to put in my book as well as just something that I talk about publicly. Um, you know, I recognize that I was a part of the problem as my, you know, I was I was the victimizer as much as I was the victim. And I think that's a, it's a really unique, um, burden that people carry. Um, because I would say that a couple things are usually true. One being, um, we're, uh, most of us are doing what was done to us and, and we believe that this is right, that this is what God wants in this case. And so there's not the malicious intent or the desire to control somebody necessarily, but the system itself lends toward that. And so when you come out of it, there is this like really kind of bitter kind of grappling that you have to do and, and this extended healing of going, Hey, not, I need to heal from this. Like I, I, my life was really, really uh, negatively impacted. And then to also carry the weight of, I hurt a lot of people. Um, I'm friends with somebody who is a very well-known pastor for many, many years. And I remember him saying to me once, you know, I spent the first 40 years of my life indoctrinating people into this. Like, is it my job to spend the next 40 years of my life trying to get them out? And I knew what he was saying. And I also was like, God, that is such a heavy burden because like on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you should. But on the other hand, it's like, but also no, like we, we have to, I mean, we have to leave space for telling our stories and helping people where we can. Um, but also giving ourselves some grace and compassion that, um, this was not intentional. And so 
for me, I take every opportunity that I can. If somebody approaches me and says, Hey, you were, you were very influential and not in a great way in my life, in my earlier years, I do try to be as, as apologetic as I can. And I also really like to let people know that like for them, forgiving me does like their, their, their ability to heal does not hinge on them forgiving me. Um, and, and that does not have to be a part of their healing process at all. And I, I always want to make that very clear because, um, you don't have to be at peace with me in order for your healing process to go. Okay. Whatever that even means. Yeah, that, that is such an, an interesting tension and one that I, you know, wrestled with a lot, (laughs) both in therapy and in, uh, in spiritual direction. Um, yeah. And so I don't know, like, like I said, I was, I was appreciative that you, you put that element in there, um, because Mm -hmm. it is this kind of weird, like, yeah, I don't know. I participated in this, this system and I propagated this kind of system. And at the same Mm -hmm. time it was harming me. Um, Mm -hmm. and so like, that was a really kind of, uh, interesting tension to work out. And I've since been out of vocational ministry, for I think about three, three and a half years now. And um, I've been a professional brewer in that time, uh, which is very different. Um, But Mm -hmm. it has been has been very healing. And uh, I was even just reflecting prior to starting this conversation with you. um, And I mean, we'll (laughs) jump into words like uh, trauma here in a second. But I don't one one way that I have noticed healing in my life is that previous version of Josh probably three years ago like sitting down to have this conversation would have put me in a state where my you know I was having some kind of affective responses and Mm -hmm. I was kind of you know living some of this stuff in my body um and Mm -hmm. seeing where I'm at now where I can have conversation and um, talk about past experiences without having to kind of relive that like bodily experience uh, has been like yeah. really big for me and something that I've noticed only mm-hmm. more recently. <laughs> so that's awesome. Yeah. 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 So that's a anyway. testament, I think, to the work you've done on yourself individually. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the testament to uh, so many awesome people um, who have kind mm-hmm. of walked alongside me, you know, along the way, um, and fun conversations like this, like this that I've had to have or got to have. Um, yeah, let's, so we've, we've talked, said the word trauma and abuse. And Mm. in your book, you are very careful to differentiate, uh, between the two, which I also Mm. appreciate. I think being careful with our language is very important. And so, um, what kind of are, you know, what is trauma and what is abuse and and how are they different? Yeah. So, uh, interestingly, just like on a very clinical level, there is not a pretty packaged, succinct definition of trauma. And I think there will be probably in the next five to 10 years. But um, the, the way I define trauma is anything that's too much, too fast, too soon, that overwhelms our ability to cope and come back to a place of safety. Uh, that's a very subjective term. So what is traumatic for you may or may not be for me and vice versa. Um but the a, a kind of a more quippy way that I'll I'll oftentimes um, describe it is that trauma is not the thing 
that happens to you, but it is the way that your body or your nervous system responds to the thing that happens to you. And I use that definition because then I think it helps us better understand the difference between trauma and abuse. Abuse would be the thing that happens to you, whereas trauma or the, the may result from abuse, but not necessarily because perhaps we all have different um, resources available to us when quote unquote bad things happen. And so um, while it is likely that somebody who is abused has a higher risk of something resulting in trauma than somebody who's not abused. Um, we cannot unequivocally say that abuse always results in trauma. And so, um, so I think having the ability to differentiate that, uh, is really important. I think that makes some people angry, um, because I, I will like scroll through social media and there will be posts that say like hell is trauma or purity culture is trauma. And I understand what they're saying because these are deeply problematic doctrines and practices. And I certainly do. I certainly do not think that they are okay. And yet they are not trauma um, because if they were, then every single person who had even heard about these things would be traumatized. And we know that that's simply just not the case. So I think having an appropriate understanding of, you know, understanding what abuse and trauma is and the difference between it is helpful because it does help us organize our experiences. It would be pretty safe to assume that if you were uh, raised in an environment where purity culture was the norm or while where you were taught about this eternal conscious torment that you could receive uh, for not saying some specific words or praying a specific prayer or doing specific things, the likelihood that it might result in trauma or and or other mental health disorder is pretty high, but it's not unequivocal. And so I think it's important to recognize that because um, for those of us who did grow up in high control groups and religion and cults, we were taught a lot of things that were not correct. And in a lot of cases, the opposite was actually true. So I do feel impassioned to be accurate with my language because I think that empowers us to have an accurate understanding of what it is that happened. Yeah, that um, kind of hearing the differentiation, like the first time I heard that was was within your work, and I really appreciate mm -hmm. it. It helped me kind of understand better my own situation in that um, the first church that I ever worked at was very not great. Like the kind of like uh, religious abuse pattern that you talked about in one of your chapters Mm -hmm. I was like, holy crap, she studied my life working in this yeah. church. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, Marty and I kind of, my buddy Marty and I experienced this together, mm -hmm. but our response to it was very, very different. Yes. It, it yeah. messed me up a lot where I did have, you know, like trauma in the sense that my nervous system got all sorts of jacked up, you know, mm -hmm. et cetera. Whereas for Marty, he was kind of like, yeah, that church was really bad it's not good. I'm not mm -hmm. happy that this happened to me. I hope that church doesn't exist anymore. However, it didn't have the same kind of like physiological, mm -hmm. yes. you know, response on him. And Marty yes. was able to like go on and keep being a pastor and currently still is a pastor thriving in like a healthy congregation. Whereas like for me, yeah. I couldn't do that. Yeah. And yeah. so I was like, that makes you question yourself almost it was like, well, was it really not that bad? Was it just me? Like, was mm -hmm. I really the one that was the problem? And so yeah. 
hearing that difference was helpful for me because I could say, oh, no, Marty and I both experienced abuse, but in mm-hmm. my case, the abuse led to to trauma. Yes. And for Marty, yeah. it didn't. And so that's yeah. just, yeah that, was, yeah, that was a huge, hugely helpful thing for mm-hmm. me. Good. Um, I, in, in, that's awesome. In reading, yeah. 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 And I think it's important because a lot of times I will have people come to me and they'll say, well, you know, I wasn't abused by a member of the clergy or I didn't experience some of these overwhelming things that like a weird altar call or this or that. And yet my body is still demonstrating these symptoms that would potentially indicate trauma. So am I just making too big of a deal or am I like repressing memories? And usually what I'll say is, A, you're probably not repressing memories and B, you're not making too big of a deal. It is that our nervous systems are just shaped differently for a variety of different reasons, most of which are not in our control. And as a result, because of what happened, your body is responding accordingly. And that doesn't make you good, bad, better, worse than anybody else. It just is what it is. And we have to work with that. We just work with what is in front of us. Um, and so that has been helpful because I think anytime we, anytime we compare trauma to say like, Oh, that person had it worse than I did. That only leads to shame, right? Cause then all of a sudden our reaction is better or worse or bigger or smaller than the other person's. And, and that almost always just leads us to this place of shame and feeling absolutely terrible about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And too, like, as you were speaking um, a little bit before, you kind of mentioned how, you know, kind of scrolling through social media, sometimes you'll see something where it's like, oh, this doctrine is trauma, et cetera, where they're linked. And um, I've kind of, I've noticed that as well. And it's something that um, for me currently makes me very frustrated (laughs) Uh, (laughs) when I see some, and I understand it, like, trust me, I get it because Mm -hmm. I used to make these kind of statements all the time. Um, you know, like all religion is inherently trauma inducing or all Mm -hmm. worship music is something like this. And one thing that you pointed out in your book that was kind of, um, opening for me and also, um, hopefully instills a bit more compassion, uh, in my frustration is, you kind of mentioned the kind of fundamentalism, the the black and white thinking, the all or nothing mm-hmm. thinking as something that we embody. Mm-hmm. And then when there is this kind of deconstruction process, a lot of times what happens, at least at first, is people flip just from one side of the coin to the other. Mm-hmm. And so we're still embodying this fundamentalism just now on the other side of things. And so mm-hmm. seeing that as almost as like, I guess a trauma response. I don't know if that's the right language, mm-hmm. but kind of helped give me some compassion uh, mm-hmm. in that regard for when we do use this kind of overgeneralizing language. And so mm-hmm. I think that that was, that felt important for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate hearing that because I think that concept is so important when we think about uh, like indoctrination, which is, you know, so much of what happens in religious contexts, you know, oftentimes we just think, oh, that's just like messages in somebody's brain. But what we're not 
recognizing is how human physiology works. And so the more that things come into our brain, the more neural pathways that are created and connections are made between our brain and our body so that when X happens, we have Y response. And so we go, okay, I hear this tone of voice and my body immediately tenses up and it's like, oh gosh, I'm in trouble again. Right. And that doesn't necessarily happen consciously. It just, it kind of happens in a millisecond right beneath our conscience. And so the same is true when we are told messages over and over and over, and we have these very scary consequences that we might face everything from yes, how, but also, you know, being disconnected from our family and friends or being excommunicated from a church, which may or may not mean we lose our, you know, paycheck or our community or things like that. It creates this brain and body response that goes together. So when you leave that, um, you might be able to untangle all of these cognitive messages and say, oh no, I don't believe that anymore, but we haven't let it sink down into our body. We haven't resolved how that's lived in our body. So then a couple things happen. We, in most high control groups are not taught how to think. We are only taught what to think. And so um, we get out of these groups and that we don't automatically inherit the skills to think critically. And so all we have left with is the gravitational pull towards somebody or some group of people that says, here's the list of rules for what is right and what is wrong. And we go, okay, that sounds appealing because you're helping me. It's, it's, it's a coping mechanism for this dysregulation that I'm feeling in my nervous system. And, and so then we start lending or or hopping towards other fundamentalist groups, whether that is within another religion or spiritual practice, it could be a social justice movement, it could be a wellness group, it could be a political movement. There's a variety of different things, but it, it, we are pulled towards that because that is what is familiar. It's less familiar to learn how to make choices, to sit in discomfort, to learn how to find safety and stability within yourself, to think through things, to embrace difference and choice. These are all things that we never had. And so our bodies don't even know how to function when that is a part of our reality. And so, um, you know, we are doing something very human by hopping from one fundamentalist group to the next, but it's not necessarily healing. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think too, for me, I can see in that as well, this kind of like fundamental human uh, longing and desire for uh, community or for belonging, um, which is why yeah, I think yeah. one of the reasons religious trauma is, you know, so particularly nefarious is because it destroys the kind of community that is supposed to be there for you mm-hmm. to help when these kind of things happen. Yes. And so not only does like your whole worldview get blown up now, you know, you're dealing with this trauma, but now also your community is taken away. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I know that like, you know, longing for community and belonging was one um, that I, you know, was really difficult for myself and my own experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately I, I found this kind of new quirky, fun, diverse community in the in a bar, basically in the brewery, <laughs> right. That I worked at. Yeah. Um, and that, that brought a, you know, a lot of, uh, kind of crazy healing for me. Um, mm. but yeah, that, yeah. I don't know. So I, 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 that's so helpful because again, it just, it helps with, um, compassion because yeah, I, I, 
I don't want to become the kind of person that like, oh, now I see someone, you know, within the kind of deconstruction ish, you know, type world that I swim in doing something that I think is stupid, but I also recognize that I did that as well and have this kind of like, oh, look how, you know, mm-hmm. whatever I am. Mm-hmm. I don't want, I don't want that to happen yeah. because like, I yeah. want to be able to recognize where I was and where I, you know, I've gotten to and hopefully have compassion yeah. to like help people be safe and experience <laughs> that part yeah. of it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that like, it usually comes from a good place. Just like when we were proselytizing within religion, it was not because we were trying to harm people. It was because we thought we had the answers and, and we wanted other people to experience the gospel, right? The good news. Um, so when we come out of these groups, we are also wanting to spread the gospel, <laughs> of, of, you know, deconstruction or religious trauma or living, you know, without control. And I I think it's important to give ourselves patience that it's coming from a good place, but then to give other people patience to say, this is all our own journey. And, and not only is it our own journey, like there is no one specific destination point. I think that's another thing we see in some of the deconstruction spaces is, you know, in order to be truly deconstructed, you have to believe these things, or you have to land in this space, or you have to heal this. And I would say that's also a very fundamentalist way of thinking, because now I'm dictating what is the right way to deconstruct or what is the right way to heal. And now I'm just becoming a deconstruction pastor. That is not something I want to do. Um, so I think it's important to recognize that when we actually do the work in our body to resolve how that fundamentalism lives there, that's when we actually have the ability then to lean into compassion to say, Oh gosh, you know, I do hope this person gets to this other place, but yet I can really be, um, like compassionate towards them, that this is just where they're at. And I'm going to extend them the same um, permissions to take all the time they need that others extended to me that I am so grateful for. Um, So I think, I think, yeah, disembodying fundamentalism is oftentimes a huge part of that healing. Mm. Yeah. And it, it makes me so grateful for some of the like friends and mentors that I've had along the way that allowed space for, you know, Josh mm-hmm. to do the things that Josh needed to yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it, and uh, that's been super healing. So hopefully I can, you know, offer that to others as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but within, the, I guess, kind of related um, in like being careful with language within the kind of religious mm-hmm. um abuse um sector of things you also you um offered up like religious abuse and or sorry mm-hmm. uh, like religious trauma and what you called ares adverse religious experiences mm-hmm. and i think that too was a mm-hmm. uh, kind of a helpful um distinction for you know much of the same reasons yeah. i i did earlier but is there anything um mm-hmm. that you might want to say about that kind of distinction within the the realms of religion Yeah. So the term adverse religious experiences was coined by um, some of my colleagues and myself. Um, We kind of came up with it because the term religious or spiritual abuse can feel very jarring to people. And some people don't feel comfortable using that to describe their experience. Um, They might use or reserve the word abuse for something that feels more egregious or overt, but they were still going, but these experiences happen and they had this impact on me. 
And so we came up with the term adverse religious experiences to help people just have some language around some of the things that happened to them. And we based some of the concept of adverse religious experiences on the adverse childhood experiences study that was done um, and is very, very well known and was is really kind of a foundational piece for understanding developmental or childhood trauma. Now, unlike that study that says, okay, if these 10, they, they kind of give 10 categories of adverse experiences you might have. And so you score, you rank, you know, one to 10, your, your score is somewhere between one and 10. And the hypothesis is that the higher the score, the higher the ACE number, the more likely it is that it would result in trauma and or other significant uh, physical and mental health disorder. So our hypothesis also is that it is likely that the more adverse religious experiences you have, the more likely it would result in trauma or other dis-ease or disorder. However, we also want to hold space for two things. First of all, recognizing that just one adverse religious experience could result in trauma and having a hundred of them may not, right? Like there, there is no like ranking order there. And the other piece of it is we are trying to steer clear from defining all the specific adverse religious experiences, because the fact of the matter is if it was adverse to you, then it was adverse. Like it was an adverse religious experience. And so while we kind of have some parameters of like, you know, impacts you fit on a psychological or physical or relational or financial kind of level, that's just to kind of expand the definition and give people the ability to say like, Oh yeah, these beliefs or this system or purity culture or whatever it may be, this had a very adverse effect on me. In fact, this is what led to some of my anxiety or depression or trauma or where, whatever it might be. And so, um, we found it to be an extremely helpful term. There is research that's being done around it. We have some preliminary kind of, um, results from a survey of just kind of like, what is the impact of adverse religious experiences? And probably not shockingly over the overwhelming kind of top thing that people experience as a result of adverse religious experiences is shame. Um, and that was just overwhelmingly the top answer in, in the survey that we completed. Um, and I think we have something like over two or 3000 results of, of people having completed the survey. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. That is pretty wild. That, cause that's, yeah, that's curious to me. Um, because I would wonder if something like uh fear would show up as well because i think you know obviously that was um, actually the second okay that was the okay. second result was fear yes it was shame was number one fear was number two i cannot remember what the third one was but um yes i mean shame shame was like by far the top one but fear was still quite significant hmm. yeah that i mean that's just i guess me being uh self-centered because for me a lot of mine was more fear-based uh there was there definitely was um uh, shame things involved mm -hmm. but as like a straight white dude the purity culture stuff wasn't yeah. as geared towards me um and i'm not saying purity mm -hmm. culture is the only thing that is shame inducing um but that is a big factor within mm -hmm. purity culture so for me a lot mm -hmm. of it was like um i had a lot of issues like because of experiences um trust of like adult males, like adult male specifically mm -hmm. authority figures. 
Like I couldn't even be in the room by myself with another guy without like my body going crazy. Mm. Um, so there was that, wow. but also around things like um, kind of like rapture, hell, which were more fear based. Those were kind of the ones that, you know, kind of got to me. Um, you know, and I think of, of the work of my buddy, uh, Dan Koch, who does the, you have permission Mm -hmm. podcast and he, he's studying like spiritual, um, abuse and has kind of like the survey that he created as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. Dan is actually part of the research collective that the religious trauma Institute started, which is kind of fun. And because, yeah. And so he's, he's been a part of that. He and many others. And really it's just, it's this big research collective that we have where people are bringing their projects, sharing their research, looking at new research to start. It's been incredible to see what some of these results are and where people are going, because really there hasn't been a lot of research done on religious trauma, except some of the most extreme circumstances, things like cults, clergy, sexual abuse. Um, Religion has traditionally been thought of as what we call a pro-social or supportive factor in our culture where they say, yeah, religion is the thing you turn to in a time of need. It gives you a higher purpose. It gives you support and connection, things like that. Um, and that may be true for some people. I, I definitely want to reserve the right for that to be somebody's experience. And yet we also know that it's not exclusively that. And so um, I really appreciate the work that Dan and others are doing in the collaborative research group to be able to just expand the conversation and ultimately uh, create more resources for people that are coming out of these systems. Yeah, it's important work. I'm I'm excited maybe seems too flippant, but like I'm excited for this work to continue developing because I think it's going to help so many people um just mm-hmm. even experientially interacting with, you know, the people that I have through uh podcasting and having people email me their stories and like crazy stuff. So mm-hmm. and I'm I'm excited that mm-hmm. this kind of field is is growing and emerging because I think it really is going to be um deeply helpful and beneficial to so many people, including yeah. myself. <laughs> and so um but yeah. yeah when it comes to like these kind of things. So we've talked about you know kind of what a, abuse and trauma um is or are whatever the proper english sentence <laughs> yeah. is there um how does the how do these things actually impact our bodies it's like what what happens to our um our brains or what happens you know physiologically what what's going on here when we experience things like trauma yeah so the general answer is it depends <laughs> um Because trauma can impact us in a variety of ways, but it's also very personalized in a lot of ways. So um, how those symptoms kind of live and land on and live in your body is going to be different from person to person. One of the things that I say frequently throughout my book is that religious trauma is trauma. And the reason I say that is because when we allow for religious trauma to be trauma, the same way that trauma from war or childhood trauma, trauma from sexualized violence um, happens, we have actually a wealth of research at our fingertips that helps us understand how trauma lives in our bodies. And so when we allow religious trauma to be trauma, the word religion is a bit of an adjective that helps us kind of further describe or understand the context of where the trauma may have um, come out of. But it also then lends us to being able to have research and interventions that help us 
truly be able to resolve how the trauma lives in our bodies. And so religious trauma in terms of like, what does that look like is going to look very similar to other trauma. The one thing I want to differentiate really quickly before I go into some of those symptoms is um, the difference between uh, PTSD and CPTSD or what we might call single incident or shock trauma and complex trauma. So single incident or shock trauma is kind of exactly what it sounds like, where it's an incident that happens that is extremely overwhelming. Um, And one of the defining factors of it is there was a before and then the thing happened and then, you know, life, life carries on after that. Um, And so when we're working with people that have single incident or shock trauma, we are working around things you know, going, being able to go back to that exact memory or experience. A lot of times we're seeing symptoms, uh, very characteristic of what you might see if you look up PTSD symptoms, like on Google. So hypervigilance, anxiety, depression, OCD, kind of limited capacity for what your life, uh, was before, you know, before this thing happened, maybe struggle in relationships, things like that. When we talk about complex trauma, we're talking about, um, Oh, oh, like kind of this ongoing, consistent, persistent threat and overwhelm that is inescapable. Um, And so one of the defining features of that is that there, in most cases, is no before. That's just how life was. I think about how people who grew up in high control religion, it's like for, for myself, there was never a time where I knew any different. This was just all that I ever knew. And that's the story for a lot of people. And so there may not be just one or two really big things that happen where I go there. It was that moment that something happened. Instead, it might be that I was living in a constant state of hypervigilance, or I was living in a constant state of fight or flight or freeze or sympathetic nervous system activation. And so um, there's a variety then when we're talking about that more complex trauma, what the symptoms look like tend to be a bit more all-encompassing. That's not as a way to compare, oh, this trauma is worse than that. It's simply just recognizing that when we have things over time where our nervous system is stuck on on or stuck on off, we're going to naturally have some symptoms that are going to be pretty impactful in all areas of our lives. So that can look like everything like physiologically, we might see things like chronic disease, chronic pain, other chronic illnesses, um, autoimmune disease, gastrointestinal dis- or, um, issues, um, It can even turn into other um, diseases and and illnesses. Psychologically, this might look like relational issues, social phobias, anxiety, depression, OCD. Um, Sexually, this can oftentimes look like sexual dysfunction, even if the trauma was not sexual in nature. The research is now coming out that saying there is a lot of sexual dysfunction in PTSD um, survivors that have had no categorically like sexual trauma. Um, and that has to do with things like vulnerability and safety and bodily response and things like that. Um, so we start to see a lot of symptoms in a lot of different areas when we're talking about complex trauma. Oftentimes this actually looks like just our personality, uh, who we are kind of characteristically where we're always the anxious person, or we are overreacting, or we struggle with relationships and boundaries. Um, we, you know, kind of are always in maybe a depressed or anxious state where we're hypervigilant or very scrupulous about the things that we're doing. Um, I would would, you know, I would encourage people to look at definitions on Google or if they Google, you know, symptoms of CPTSD, 
I encourage people to not get stuck on them, but I think that it can be a really nice uh, kind of ease in to saying like, huh, that's really interesting. This is, this is, you know, something that might be true of my life. Um, so yeah, is that answering that question or do I need to go deeper? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was good. Yeah. Thank you. I just wanted to kind of get at like the, yeah. like how this does impact our body. Um, yeah. and like yeah. for me, for example, um, a lot of mine came from, like I said, the first church I worked in, which was very high control, very abusive. Um, and I was kind of on like the stuck on was my mm-hmm. experience, uh, very yeah. hypervigilant. Um, but it's also um, when I started to develop things like depression and severe anxiety. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then my response to that, because you kind of talk about like the fight, flight, freeze and fawn mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in that particular situation was um, was to fawn. I tried to um, do more to fit in to, you know, please yeah. my boss who was like the yeah. source of all my troubles, like all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just my, you know, my own experience yeah. is kind yeah. of how it it turned out for me. And then mm-hmm. moving on past that, I just noticed, um, you know, once once I left that church, the next church I, I worked for um, had a pastor that was not a guy. <laughs> that yeah. was very yeah. helpful for me. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then even the third church that I worked in, um, I actually I had a very helpful conversation with the head pastor, Mark, um, mm-hmm. where I, I was honest with him. And I was like, Mark, look, I have this thing that happens to me. If you text me and say, hey, can you meet in my office? I'm going to automatically assume the worst. My heart's yeah. going to drop. The hairs on the back mm-hmm. of my neck are going to stand up. And then I'm going to feel like I'm in an immediate state of danger. Yeah. You know, it was kind mm-hmm. of my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even being able to have that conversation with yeah. Mark and him, like understanding and kind of giving me space for that to, to happen, you know, um, yeah. was, you know, was very helpful. So I appreciate yeah. Mark for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, That's really kind. Yeah. Yeah. And recognizing that. Um, mm. yeah, but, yeah. um, oh, my brain just. Um, yeah, but I have, so I have like a, a, a weird question with you and and then, you know, cause we're going to, our, our time's kind of wrapping up here and it's, when I say weird, it's a tension that I feel within myself. And so I wanted Mm -hmm. to kind of hear what your thoughts are because I don't know if I'm like wrong for thinking or feeling this way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So when I, I look back to like some of the um, kind of things that I said or did when I was in this, you know, still, um, healing through a lot of the kind of traumatic experiences that I had. And I recognize that like a lot of the stuff that I did wasn't always necessarily rational, um, or being said in the best state of mind, but it was rather coming out of this place of dysregulation and, and, um, trauma and anxiety and these kind of things. And so then, when you know myself working with like trying to help cultivate um groups of people that can come together around some of these kind of shared experiences and hopefully find a community and home um like so many of you know my other podcast buddies do sometimes i i notice what can happen is when a bunch of people that genuinely experience trauma together um are in a group that's supposed to be safe and helpful for them 
when something kind of can pop up, right? Like we can throw in a Facebook post like, oh, can you believe what Mark Driscoll did today? That can kind of like, <laughs> you, you know yeah. what I mean? Like that can like yes. kind of reignite something within the group where now all these people who genuinely have trauma are now like, mm-hmm. it like it almost like re makes like helps you like relive trauma or it kind of puts you back in that place of dysregulation. And then it it kind of like can get out of hand really quick. And that, mm-hmm. I don't know, that doesn't seem healthy to me, but also mm-hmm. I want to create space where we can be together. <laughs> do you see yeah. the kind of yeah. tension I'm trying to describe? I, I don't know what to do with that because yeah. you don't want to tell people not to share their stories or not yeah. to be honest, but also yeah. you're like, well, how do we do this in a way that's healthy? So it feels weird, yeah. but mm-hmm. like, that's kind of the, that's the tension. Yeah. yeah I mean, I have seen that many times in what I call like deconstruction land. So whether that is within a specific group, like on Facebook or just kind of social media in general, where something will happen and people get really, really activated um, and, and it pushes the conversation into spaces that are even more activating, right? <clears throat> So I think what's important to recognize is that that is a normal nervous system response, right? Um, When I'm activated, when I feel like I'm threatened, I am going to, my, 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 the prefrontal cortex of my brain goes offline. And that's the space where we have logic and ration and we can kind of think things through. But when that, that part is kind of offline, we are acting out of more primitive parts of our brain, which are purely acting in the service of survival. So in those moments, we can rationalize any thought or behavior or words, even if they're not rational. So when we get activated and our nervous system perceives that there is threat, even if there isn't actually threat, right? In this case, it's like, here's what Mark Driscoll did. And he's not actually here in our group. He's just, you know, it's just an article about him, but it's the perception of threat because at some point he was, he was, you know, I, in my life, he was a very active, active person. Um, and so then my nervous system goes danger, danger, danger. And that part of my brain goes offline. And now I'm acting in this, in the service of survival. I have to do whatever I need to do to stay alive. And in a lot of cases that comes out as fight. And I don't mean like overt fights where we are like verbally assaulting people, but it can become of like, I'm going to share my truth. And if you don't agree with me, that means you're silencing me or you are othering me or whatever it might be. And that may be the case, but it's probably not because I'm coming from this place where all I can see is danger. And so in terms of that answer of like, what does that look like in an online space and how do we create community? I will say that it's probably very, very difficult. Um, It's not that we shouldn't try. I do think that we should. But I think when we're talking about groups of people that have been deeply wounded and traumatized, um, there's the potential for being triggered constantly is pretty high. Um, And the other thing about trauma, and and this is the same as, as with healing, is that just as trauma is subjective, so is healing. So one, something that might be helpful for me in my own healing process might be really, really negative or scary or unhelpful for you. And that again, doesn't mean that what I'm doing is, 
better or worse or more right or more wrong. It just means that I'm different. And, and, and I think that when we are in those activated spaces, we don't have much tolerance for difference that feels very dangerous to us. And so then when, you know, person A says, well, here's what worked for me, person B goes, no, that's a threat to my very existence. And there's not room then for nuance and humanity to even come into play. So that's a really long-winded way of saying, I don't think there is a perfect way to do a community like that. But what I do think is possible is that when we are leading with things like curiosity and compassion and can keep ourselves in a regulated space, then we can show up for others in a different way. And at the very least, we can um, curb like that conversation getting out of hand. So I'm not going to participate in it, not because I'm in my flight mode, but because I'm regulated and I know that this person is activated and I need to just give them space to get their feet back on the ground. And so I think when we can create spaces like that, we actually do have room for growth. Um, and when that growth happens, then we have room for things like choice and curiosity and difference and, and being able to go back and forth. And that can be a really beautiful thing. It's just hard when we're coming out of these spaces of being deeply traumatized and, and extremely hypervigilance because in the past disagreement meant I might go to hell. Um, and so I think it's important to understand the context and, and to know that like, I have to be responsible for myself. And that may mean that I am in flight mode and absolutely need to remove myself from this conversation. Or it may just mean I need to, I need to let myself get back to the ground, take care of myself um, and, and not further whatever the dynamic is that's happening. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Um, yeah. Especially for me where my, one of my tendencies is to try to go into like, let me help you mode or something like that. Right. Sure. Yeah. When sometimes yeah. that's, that's not always the best thing to do. And, um, you know, especially when like, if we're not thinking rationally or something like that, trying to like walk through something rationally right. can, yeah. you know, can kind of come off as like you were saying, like oh, silencing or victim shaming mm -hmm. or something like that. And so that's something that I'm, I'm learning through experience, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately yeah. through experience that like, sometimes it's just best to kind of let people have their space. Cause, um, I mean, we all really do need to, there is like, you know, deep internal work that um, mm -hmm. needs to happen, which you write a lot about on your book. And I did a really bad job of bringing that into the conversation. Oh, <laughs> so forgive it's me. fine. Uh, no, Cause it's it such was... a helpful resource yeah. and, you know, you yeah. have chapters on, you know, reconnecting with your body and setting boundaries and you have a great chapter on like, um, basically like sexual ethics, these kind of things. So, yeah. um, I really appreciated your book. Thank you so much for uh, oh. for writing. I'm excited. I think it should yeah. come out by the time this episode uh, has aired because it comes out on the 17th, right? 17th. Yep. Yeah. October awesome. 17th. Wild. Yeah. yeah. Wild. <laughs> so like a week from tomorrow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, I guess uh, kind of then as, as we wrap up today, is there anywhere... Um, you would like to point people to continue yeah. uh, either, you know, following yourself mm -hmm. or your work, obviously I'm going to link your book in the show notes, Thank uh, you. but anywhere else you'd like people to go. 
Yeah. Well, yes. Like you said, my book is available on October 17th um, worldwide, wherever you purchase books. And it's also available on Audible for those people who like to listen instead, which is great. Um, you can find me on social media or across all platforms and my website, Dr. Laura E. Anderson. Um I know I mentioned at the very beginning, I have a company that I run and it is the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. Every single um, practitioner that works there either has an uh, like a professional background in mental health or advanced trauma training. Most of them have both. Um, and uh, work with clients all over the world to resolve and recover from religious trauma, cults, high control groups, narcissism, all the things, and have an experience in that themselves as well. And so that is part of their own personal background, as well as that inspires their professional work. So we are across all platforms and on so on um, our website is trauma resolution and recovery uh, or trauma resolution and recovery.com is our website. And you can look up a practitioner, uh, read about them, find a good fit and um, schedule a free 20 minute inquiry call to make sure that would be a good fit and start coaching with them. Um, and then the Religious Trauma Institute is something I co-founded that is geared more towards um, professionals. So clinicians, coaches, advocates, uh, healers, helpers, all the things. And we do trainings and uh, we have a couple that are going to be coming up at the end of this year. Um, so you can get on our email list if you want to um, uh receive information about that. But, but yeah, my website is probably the best place to like land at. If you want all information on like the podcast that I host, my sub stack, you know, what I'm doing links to social media. That's the best place. All right. Good deal. Well, thank you again so much for uh, your time today, but also for yeah. your book and for the work uh, that you do. So hopefully yeah, our, our so paths much. will cross again in the, uh, in the future. Love it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for hanging out. And listeners, thank you for hanging out today as well. Hopefully you found the conversation as helpful as I did. And as, uh, as always, guys, go in peace. <laughs>